The radical left knows exactly what they're doing. They're ruthless. And it's time that somebody did something about it. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. I will tell you right now. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The January 6th committee held two more hearings last week, each chock-a-block with vivid details filling in, in harrowing fashion, episodes that we had known only from their top-line versions. At the end of the committee's detailed and dynamic presentations on The Big Lie and Hang Mike Pence, it felt as if the country has been the beleaguered heroine in a Perils of Pauline movie, with at least two near scrapes that each could have brought down the democracy. The committee's work to date has exceeded almost everyone's expectations, and yet it remains unclear whether the hearings have landed beyond the engaged group who already shared the committee's view of January 6th, and whether, in particular, they may be showing the way to a light at the end of the Trump tunnel. There are some indications that the devastating portraits, painted mainly by Republicans and officials in Trump's orbit, of the former president's ruthless ambition and stunning dishonesty may be peeling away a cadre of former supporters and loosening his brutal grip on the country's political life. Of course, that only raises the question of, then what? In a country in which nearly all federal elected Republican officials remain in thrall to some form of Trumpism. There was a modest but rare, indeed unprecedented in the last 25 years, breakthrough on gun legislation with a response to the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that pairs mental health and school security measures with a few gun policy updates at the margins. The deal falls far short of what the country needs to address its ravaging gun problem, but it at least creates a template for bipartisan discussion going forward. To assess the impact and aftershocks of these seismic events, and especially the prospects for the hearings to help walk the country back from the cliff, I'm thrilled to welcome an awesome set of three of the most knowledgeable and prominent guests in the country, and they are Emily Bazelon, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, co-host of the popular and excellent podcast, The Slate Political Gab Fest, and a lecturer and Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. Her newest book is Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. Before coming to the Times, Emily was a senior editor at Slate, where she co-founded the women's section X. And she previously was a Soros Media Fellow and a law clerk in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Ezra Klein, a New York Times columnist and host of the singular podcast that gets me jealous every time I hear it, The Ezra Klein Show. He joined Opinion in 2021, and previously he was the founder, editor-in-chief, and then editor-at-large at Vox. Before that, he was a contributor at MSNBC and columnist and editor at The Washington Post, where he founded and led the Wonk 
blog vertical. His first book, Why We're Polarized, was published in 2020. It's his first time on Talking Feds. We're thrilled to welcome him. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you. And Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large at The Bulwark and the founder and director of Defending Democracy Together, an organization dedicated to defending America's liberal norms, principles, and institutions. He had a rich and varied experience in government, in senior positions in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administration, and he founded, famously, the Weekly Standard in 1995 and edited that influential magazine for over two decades. He's also the host of the highly regarded video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Man, this is a powerhouse of a podcast crew, I gotta say. Welcome back, Bill Crystal. Good to be back, Harry. All right, so the biggest event of the week for the current political landscape, but also for history, is, of course, the hearings of the January 6th Select Committee. We had two this week. It's almost hard to remember back to the first. It was the Big Lie hearing and then the Hang Mike Pence hearing. Each, it seems to me, was a tour de force that left Americans shell-shocked at how close the country came to constitutional disaster. So please offer up dissenting views if you have them. But otherwise, let's just start here. Assuming you agree, what elements of the committee's presentations have made them so effective? I'd say two things. We're talking Friday afternoon. So the hearings began, what, eight day, less than eight days ago. It was Thursday night, yeah. right? Doesn't it feel longer? I mean, I think it's impressive what they've done in a week. Yeah, they were each like intense events, I think. And cumulative, really, which is often not the case mm-hmm. in congressional hearings, which are sort of scattershot and don't build on one another. And for me, the big story, I guess, would be that who knows how many actual voters' minds have changed and all that. But leaving that aside for a minute, I'd say the consensus among the people who are following it and not so sympathetic to Trump, but whatever, was that Trump had behaved horribly, dereliction of duty, total recklessness and incitement of the mob, irresponsibility, et cetera. But maybe that was kind of the conventional view eight days ago, my view, and I'm pretty anti-Trump. Whereas now I think it's really, one feels like the committee has shown or begun to show that there was a real criminal conspiracy. And that's different, right? I think we're beyond sort of that he was recklessly irresponsible, maybe deserved to be impeached and convicted. It was surrounded by people who should not have been in high levels of government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, did all kinds of inappropriate things. And I do think now the committee has done a very good job of making it more, more serious isn't quite the right word, but making clear that there was a plan, a little haphazard, but a series of plans, a concerted effort from November 3rd on to January 6th. My worry about the hearings going in a little bit was the focus has been on January 6th, understandably, because of the drama and the horror of the day, and not enough focus on the fact that from November 3rd to January 6th, or really before November 3rd, we had a president of the United States working pretty systematically, so far as he was able, to overturn, to lay the groundwork for overturning, and then overturn at different levels in different ways, state legislatures, using the Justice Department, you know, et cetera, the results of the election. And I was worried that we'd get caught up in the drama of January 6th and lose sight of the plot. And I think they've done an excellent job of making clear that there was a plot. Yeah, I agree with that. The thing that changed in my mind legally this week was about Trump's state of mind. So to prove the potential crimes, which are conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States, these are white collar offenses and they have this classic problem. How do you prove that this person knew that they were breaking the law? 
because you don't usually have someone like announcing that that's what they thought they were doing. And I think now we're at this point, especially with former Attorney General Bill Barr's testimony, but really just cumulative of all these people around Trump, they were telling him the truth. They were even telling him that these schemes were illegal. And so now I think we're in the terrain of what's called the willfully blind way of thinking about state of mind, where like, you can say, I don't accept that until the cows come home. But if you're being willfully blind to something that is clear as the nose on your face, that's not really a defense anymore. And so that was what shifted for me this week. I worry I'm going to be the dissenting view that I don't want to be here. I don't know that I think the country is shell-shocked. Yeah. I sort of wish that it were, but that is yeah. not my impression of the situation. Fair enough. It seems to me that the hearings are operating on sort of three levels and you have to look at them differently. There is the substantive laying out of the narrative and testimony of what happened. And I just think they've been extraordinary on that level. The effectiveness of the presentations, the sequencing, the video they showed where they're sort of cross-cutting between what happened contemporaneously on that first day. I think in terms of creating a public document that is both coherent and credible and has the words of the key players and also has a sense of the dramatic to it and it's comprehensible, I think you have to say they've done more on that than anybody could have anticipated. A good sense of showmanship too. Then there is the kind of political level of it, right? Will this change anything? Will this, say, change the Republican Party's attitude towards Donald Trump? I'm not really seeing that. Will it change this sort of class of people we might think of as a wavering voter? Will it change players within the Republican Party, elites within the Republican Party, right? People with some level of power who do not already believe, I think what, frankly, the people on this panel believe before the January 6th committee hearings. Yeah. I don't have a strong view on that yet. I'm not even sure what I think the changeable audience even is. I think they're doing the best job they can. I just don't know how possible it is. I mean, Fox News isn't carrying the hearings. You're not going to get Fox News. But I think that it's a really interesting question of who is persuadable. Like, what is the audience that you think you could move here? And are they moving them? And how would we know? And then there is what Emily brings up, which is the legal dimension, right? Are crimes being proven? Are there legal consequences being courted? And I leave that to the more knowledgeable legal scholars on this panel, because my views there aren't worth a wit. Well, we'll move to certainly your number two, Ezra, and maybe three. But I do want to pause to second something that Bill has said, because yes, in part, it's been a box checking exercise on the legal front. But I do think it's been more vivid than that. We've gotten what we never got with the Mueller report. That is, people had a very loose sketch of the outlines of events, but to see it really filled in in detail with a focus on what Trump knew and what he was doing. I do think it takes it from arguably boorish, for those who might have thought so, to criminal, but it also takes it from arguably boorish to so malevolent, even without the question of how we fit into the federal criminal code. A president of the United States whipping up a mob to tear the vice president limb from limb, and both with the big lie and the Pence story, we got this very interesting gloss that basically no grown-up in the room among his senior advisors, and they did a very good job, I think, of presenting it through Bill Barr and other Republicans, was endorsing either of these notions. They were both factually the big lie and legally the Eastman plot, completely 
bankrupt and the people who were had just crawled out of the woodwork from far away and Trump had latched onto them and exploited their ambition. So it, it wasn't as if he had a division among his advisors. He just lurched for something, anything, and he poured in the storm to try to stay in power. All right, why don't we go to your second point there, Ezra? I mean, I think this is very important and essential just for history. But yeah, what are the prospects, and we're shooting in the dark, of course, but for enough of an erosion among the 60% or whatever Republicans who believe in the big lie that these hearings essentially spell the end of at least Trump, if not Trumpisms, influences the dominant player in American politics. I've talked to a lot of people about that who my very few remaining Republican friends, but I have ex-Republican right. friends who <laughs> still are in touch with, with big shot Republicans. So right. I, I guess I have maybe a tiny bit of insight. First of all, you could have lost a lot of money in the last six years betting against Trump remaining dominant, right. including on like January 7th, a year and a half ago, when it seemed yeah. like finally maybe the spell would be broken. So I don't want to at all pretend that we know or overstate it. I think the base is the base. I doubt if it affects anything there. Is that base 60%? Is it 40% of the party really just die hard, unmovable? Hard to know, honestly. There is a very important swath of Republicans, Trump acquiescent, Trump enabling, not crazy about him, but he delivered a lot. They certainly voted for him again. They supported him again, but not the enthusiasts. A little nervous after January 6th, maybe reaccommodating, though, over the last year. Things seem okay for the Republicans in 2022, after all. They can live with Trump. I think some of them look at this and say, Oof, you know, I don't know. Is this maybe 2024? Can't we have to... I mean, these people I don't care for either, but can't we have DeSantis? Can't we have, right. I don't know, whoever else, you know, 10 yeah, other right. people like that who would fit the sort of Trump adjacent category? And I do think there are a lot of donors. There are a lot of business types and lawyers. If you're a Republican lawyer of a certain age, you look at Greg Jacob and you think, well, that's kind of me, you know, a conservative lawyer, got yes. a job in government, served the Trump administration, served Mike Pence. He's not some one of those rhino squishes, anti-Trump, never Trump lunatics. <laughs> And he seemed like he was sincerely shocked and appalled. And I don't know, maybe that's not so good. If you're a businessman at the country club, you're a CEO or something, I don't know, vice president of some big corporation. What do I know about this? But I'll just make this up. And you're thinking, I don't know. If my general counsel told me, you're calling a bar, that I couldn't do something. And the other attorneys we use were more flamboyant. The M&A attorneys, they also said, I don't think this thing is really right. And my family attorney said, maybe not. And I went looking online and finally found some guy who says it's okay. You can't do that, right? So I think there's a certain slice of Republican types who will be moved over from more Trump acquiescent to more Trump nervous. Now, whether that sticks, whether that matters, whether when Trump runs and gets 53% of the vote anyway, they don't all promptly come back home. That would be what the last six years has suggested. That's all entirely possible. But I think for now, some erosion among a certain type of important, though, people who have been more acquiescent to Trump than one might have expected. Maybe there's some erosion there. I don't know. To the extent that Trumpists, many of them are motivated not necessarily by love of Trump, but by animosity toward the liberal elites. It's been very effective and wise for them, starting with Bill Barr, to basically be making the case through all, I think you could basically say, establishment Republicans, the kind of team normal versus team crazy theme, 
when I talk to Trump-friendly Republicans, the thing I hear yeah. nowadays, and the place where I think the hearings hurt him on the margin, is that you go back to 2016 and Donald Trump, and I don't think he had a lot of the people we're talking about here then either, like the, the people who have a family council and run a corporation. <laughs> yes. And you know, th- th- those weren't Trump's people. But Trump was newness. Maybe you didn't like the Republican Party. Maybe you thought things needed to be shook up. And the thing that he is now is baggage. And I do hear this from a lot of Republicans who are friendly to him and don't like people like me, which is a sense of him being sort of your, you know, a little bit crazy grandpa now. And so you actually may still like what he stands for. You want the direction he took the party in to keep going. But you just want somebody now who you're not endlessly relitigating January 6th. And what did he say to whom, when, and Truth Social, and the Ukraine thing. In many ways, I think Trump has been hurt much worse by Putin invading Ukraine than by anything happening in these hearings. I think he's much more vulnerable on that set of issues. And at the same time, the gutting thing about trying to give an honest analysis of this is that it's a way of saying the country is a little bit fucked. And the thing that we're facing when you try to look at this straight if you're trying to do a political analysis of it as opposed to a substantive one, is that this should all be far beyond disqualifying. The Republican Party should basically not have Donald Trump in its nominating process. And it does have the power functionally to do things like that. And nobody thinks there's any real shot of that. And it's a little bit hard to know what to say, because on some level, I feel like if you take a political analysis of this, you end up almost affirming the problem you're dealing with, which is by saying, well, it looks like nobody in the Republican Party actually cares about this. And if Trump does just steamroll the primaries, they're just going to fall in line with him the way they did last time. You're almost normalizing this. And on the other hand, I don't want to sit here and give people false hope that something that should be happening isn't. But it is like this strange to me non-dramatic tension of the hearings, which is that in any normal world, this should be more than enough. And in the world we're in, maybe on the margin, it makes people a little bit more exhausted of Donald Trump, which gives somebody who in every other way is going to try to pretend to be Donald Trump a slightly better chance in the 2024 primary. And they will then be inheriting or coming into play with a Republican party that has come much more fundamentally anti-small D democratic, has many more people in power who are skeptical of elections. I mean, on some level, this is all very, very depressing. The Times had a great piece the other day about how many of the Republicans winning primaries either rhetorically support Trump's big lie or actively acted in support of it. Including like secretaries of state and people who are going to really matter. Secretaries of state, gubernatorial candidates. So whatever kind of happens in here, and a lot of these Republicans are going to win in 2022, it's going to be a bad year for Democrats. So there are going to be a lot more people in power who, whatever happens to Donald Trump, are much more willing to believe Trump-esque stories possibly told by a more compelling messenger and more strategic and savvy messenger than Donald Trump in the future. So I don't know, my background level of belief that there's a genuine imperilment in the possibility of a crisis, an election crisis for this country is is much higher than it was, say, five years ago. Well, except that if the Republicans just win outright, then we don't have to have a crisis of democracy, right? (laughs) Right. Or at least it's postponed (laughs) because then they get into power and we have more entrenchment of minority rule and it takes a little longer to get there. I'm sorry, this sort of gallows humor. No, but I think that's true. I always tell people that that's actually much more likely, that the likeliest outcome is not a democratic crisis, but just Republicans winning elections. Yeah. Well, look, rules is rules then, I mean. No, but that is a crisis of liberal democracy. Yes, it creates a different kind of crisis now. (laughs) Right, right, right. 
But let's stick with the part for a second. You made the point, oh, it's an actual illuminating hearing. Why is that? Because after five years of every hearing being these ridiculous food fights where Republicans take their turn and for five minutes talk about, I don't know, Benghazi, you actually had a focused hearing on presentation and uncovering of facts. And basically, that's because McCarthy made the decision not to participate. I don't want to get away too much from the substance, which is what really matters for history, if nothing else. But in retrospect, was it a blunder? for McCarthy, you think, to refuse to participate. And they've been really quiet, haven't tried to counter this avalanche of info. How are they attempting or will they attempt to counter what's happening in the hearings? I mean, it would be nice if only the substance matters for history, but politics matters for history. Right. And I'm very much with Ezra, and he said better than I have when I've sputtered about this for the last five years. I mean, how yeah. dire the situation really is, which I very much believe. Now, having said that, one can avert a close-run disaster, and one can, by a narrow margin, fall into disaster. And so if it weakens Trump some, the one thing I do think, and I'm not sure about this, but I think this is true, I'd say these kinds of populist authoritarian movements tend not to be quite as easy to hand off from the original demagogue to the successor. We could sit here and say DeSantis is clearly smarter, than, you know, more disciplined than Trump and more focused and, you know, maybe would be more effective. I take that point, and maybe Hawley and Tucker Carlson and Peter Thiel even more dangerous, which I also happen to believe, ultimately. On the other hand, Trump, the original demagogue, has a big advantage. And you get splintering when the original guy goes, and there'll be fights and disappointments, and Marjorie Taylor Greene won't like it that DeSantis is doing this. From the point of view, going back to the 30,000 feet that Ezra was kind of talking about near the yeah. end, of liberal democracy, I kind of think weakening Trump is very important even though I can spit out, as we all could, eight different scenarios where we're still in terrible shape with Donald Trump not on the scene three or four years from now. What are the signals that we would see if Trump was really weakened in the Republican Party? I mean, don't we need to see elite officials moving away from him? Yeah. So I think you'd have to see DeSantis deciding to run whether or not Trump runs. And if, even if Trump announces, which I don't think is out of the question, incidentally, this summer or on Labor Day, precisely to preclude to try to, in a way, freeze DeSantis, we'd have to see big donors, really big donors, and some state and local electeds and other, you know, quote, influentials who had been okay with Trump explicitly endorsing, let's say, DeSantis, just use him for now, against Trump, not just keeping quiet, you know? And I think if those two things happen by the end of the year, DeSantis clearly running, real people not just quietly murmuring, Ooh, I don't know about Trump, but I can't say anything, which is their current modes. That's, having said all this, right now, the person I talked to most recently who's in touch with some of these donors, I said, would any of them say this now? Would any of them say next week or three weeks from now when the hearings end, look, I respect Trump, I'm grateful, blah, 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 but I'm with someone else for 2024. And the person I was talking to said, no, no. But maybe, maybe that's a November, December thing. Plus, they'd be polls, I suppose. It's interesting you don't even mention Pence in this equation. So do we think he's basically a non-player on the presidential stage in 24? I think he's a little too quickly eliminated in the sense that I, it feels like a little like Biden in 20. One can imagine a scenario where it can't quite be Trump. DeSantis, for some reason or other, just doesn't make it. So Scott Walker, you know, the governor who looks so strong two years out and isn't so strong once people get to see him more. And a certain kind of weird default back to, could we have Trump without January 6th? Well, who, leaving aside his own, believe me, problems and characteristics, who is Trump without January 6th? Sort of literally, 
my, it's Mike Pence. He went along with literally every single thing except January 6th. Yeah. Now, having said all that, there are all kinds of reasons why Pence is problematic. He's in a bizarre middle ground between the Trump loyalists, some of whom hate him, and the everyone who would like a fresh start, which isn't Pence. So I think ultimately you probably end up then with some senator or some governor, not Pence. But I can sort of see a Biden-esque default to Pence in that respect. I also think that when, and look, like gaming out 2024 is a fun hobby, but, uh, but, <laughs> but assume that everything I'm about to say will become unbelievably wrong. I think people really underestimated at this point, a split in the Trumpist wing that creates opportunities in other wings of the party to come through. Because the thing that Trump was able to do in 2016 was run functionally alone in his more or less populist right wing. And now everybody in the party wants to be Donald Trump to a first approximation. So you can imagine a world where Donald Trump runs and also Ron DeSantis runs and also Josh Hawley is trying to be like both of them and a couple Cruise, other players yeah. are doing it. And that actually creates openings for someone else. You can imagine a world where Donald Trump doesn't run, but there are eight people trying to do their best Donald Trump impression. And that creates an opportunity actually for Mike Pence, weirdly. I, I sort of agree with Bill, who kind of can lay claim to the Trump agenda, but also not have a lot of Trump's personality. But you can imagine a lot of other people in that guise are governors. There's Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, and there are all kinds of people who will play with a slightly different appeal. And so I think just as part of what made Trump work in 2016 was a large field that split a bunch of the vote that wasn't naturally going to go to him, I think that it is a little easy to dismiss how if Trump runs, presumably he gets a Trump vote. Although if DeSantis runs, I think there's actually some chance more of it could split than people currently realize. But nevertheless, if he doesn't, that's a lot of people going after the same voters. And those voters are not the entirety of the Republican Party. A lot of people wanted other things. And so I don't know. I think the Republican primary is much more open. And I will say, I just think there's one thing that we're not talking about here that, that is kind of important, which is what did Joe Biden and the Democrats do with any of this? Does Joe Biden and does the Democratic Party, not just Congress as an institutional figure or institutional player, do Biden and the Democrats believe this is something to run on? Do they want to increase the salience of this question in politics or do they want to reduce it? They're obviously not sure, right? Yeah. They're obviously not sure. And I also think that really matters because if you go through the hearings and it unearths all this material and the other party decides not to do anything with it, and the Republican Party obviously is not going to autonomously do anything with it, it's very hard to see what happens here. Now, of course, like the problem for Democrats is if you make it Democratic, you polarize the issue too. So there's not an obviously good play here, but I do think which play is chosen is really going to have a big impact on whether or not these hearings have changed anything a year from today. And one footnote to that, and this is more of a legal thing for you guys, for Emily and Harry, maybe. I mean, it really kind of matters if people are indicted, I think, and put to trial. I mean, I've said this a couple of times in the last week, but maybe it's because I came to Washington in 85 to the White House in 89. So that's only 10, 15 years after Watergate. It obviously mattered that Nixon was driven from office and disgraced. And couldn't run again. It was totally not, not like Trump. I mean, couldn't in the sense that there was no interest in him running again. We had Ford and uh, Reagan, basically, and neither whatever you think of them was, was really had that particular baggage of Nixon. But it was almost as important that the Attorney General of the United States, the White House Chief of Staff, the counsel to the White House went to jail. I mean, that's accountability, you know. I remember coming to the White House and we got these ethics briefings and no one ever said, and I, hopefully I didn't need it to be said to me that you shouldn't behave like H.R. Haldeman or John Dean. Or, but, you know, it was really important that people had that sense. I mean, what happens, and this gets to the political point, though, and I'm not saying this is a political call and hopefully the AG is following the law and all that, but what does it feel like a year from now? 
if Mark Meadows and Eastman, who's not part of the administration, but de facto was acting in a way as part, and other people, Jeffrey Clark, I guess, at Justice and others, if no one has been even brought to trial, even indicted, I think if you're a normal voter, you're not crazy to look at that and say, well, that was a huge amount of hoopla. It was unseemly and it was improper. But at the end of the day, we know what a scandal looks like. I mean, even in Iran-Contra, right, people were indicted and put on criminal trial for doing things they should not have done as a government official. And I, I kind of think that's a pretty important, it's not a crucial now, but a year from now, how it feels, I think would be pretty affected by that. I also agree that that's really important. And then some other considerations come to mind. So if we think that Trump, and this seems like the lesson of the hearing, was really at the center of these efforts to defraud the United States, effectively to reverse their election, then how could it be that it would be Eastman or a lower level Justice Department official or even Mark Meadows who is indicted? Then it would need to be Trump who's indicted. And like, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for Biden's attorney general to charge the former president of the United States with crimes, which by the way, are going to be crimes that like Americans are going to be like, defraud the what? Obstruct the what? They don't trip off the tongue. I keep having to remind myself what crimes we're even talking about. And I don't mean to minimize the nature of the offense at all, because preventing the orderly transfer of power is crucial to democracy. But there is going to be this set of questions about what it means for the country. And I find this to be almost like the hardest thing of all about Trump's legacy right now. He has put the country in a position where we get to choose between indicting a former president, which is normally something that happens in a banana republic, and not indicting a former presidency, which is to not defend democracy and not take exactly the steps toward accountability bill that you just laid out that are so crucial. And I am finding myself moving toward the latter position seeming more important, but with a lot of trepidation, because you can't really separate the legal choices from the political ones here. Merrick Garland has to think about whether the country really gets this. The Fox News viewers, as well as the people who, Harry, you're hoping are shell-shocked. And this is really tricky stuff. Emily, I have a question that you might know that I don't. Doubtful. Which is, you said a second ago that, because I've been thinking about the same thing, this idea that to indict a former president would be banana republic E. And I feel the same way, like intuitively. And then I look around the world, right? Something like the last Israel, five South Israel. Korean prime ministers have yes. been indicted for corruption or something. Um, in Israel, the this happens all the time. I'm half Brazilian, so I pay a lot of attention to Brazilian politics. Happens all the time there. The French do this. This is something that in other countries happens. And people are like, well, we're a banana republic now. In fact, it seems to me to be more the idea that we're a rule-abiding country now. And in America, I think we have a real political culture that fully irrespective of the laws being broken, believes that simply to cross the line of indicting a former president for anything, for any reason, would seem like such a partisan breach and open the door to so much ricochet prosecuting that that we would, you know, cross the Rubicon, we couldn't uncross and we'd collapse. But other countries don't seem to. And I'm curious if you have a view on why our legal political culture has evolved that way. Because you're right that it's a political legal question, but not everybody solves it the way we do. Don't you think the key to that is that Ford pardoned Nixon? I mean, just in our life, my lifetime, maybe not quite yours, and memory, and that he made that judgment, I think in good faith, that it would be too damaging and divisive. And I guess no former president had been indicted before that. So in a certain way, it is, we can say, I don't disagree with you, that there's something maybe a little irrational or whatever, sort of totemic American exceptionalism about it. 
But it is different. And, you know, telling Americans that, hey, you could be like Brazil, that's a little problematic too. And the president's not quite the prime minister. You know, there are all other reasons. But I do think the Nixon pardon of Ford and the fact that 30, 40 years later, people kind of decided that was probably okay to do, you know. But again, that, I think if you're going to do that, I don't know if Biden would pardon, but you've got to then prosecute someone. I think it was very important with the pardon of Nixon that Mitchell and Haldeman and all those people were held accountable. I think that's actually a really important shift that maybe we need to be thinking about this differently. And now I'm starting to think in this perhaps irritatingly lawyerly way, though I am a lawyer that no one should ever, ever hire, about the various kinds of crimes that Trump could be accused of. Is it different to indict a president for interfering with an election under these relatively obscure federal statutes than it would be, for example, for him to face criminal charges in New York for tax fraud? Looks like it's not happening, at least not through the Manhattan DA's office. What about in Georgia, where there's a grand jury sitting hearing evidence about the pressure Trump was putting on Brad Raffensperger? That's a state. Maybe that would be easier for people to understand. Maybe I'm too worried about people understanding this. And like Merrick Garland just has to get up one morning and find the fortitude to do this. The country will come along or not, but like people will figure out what this crime is and they'll absorb it. And that's something that is so important for the future of democracy that these precedents you cite in Brazil and Israel and France actually are important. And Israel, incidentally, and I think the others too, it is often financial which people can understand, right? right. I mean, yes. if Netanyahu took Corruption. money he shouldn't have taken, well, that's like being a CEO, you know, whatever. Whereas this is, God knows, there are plenty of things you could get Trump on, incidentally, that are just straight out financial crimes. And in a way, it would have been, would be or would have been better, perhaps, for that reason. But this is indicting him for something that he did as a political effort, a totally illegitimate one. So it does raise, I think, slightly trickier questions. I mean, you can argue it either way. You can say it's more important. Yeah. Yeah. And also there's a lot of difficulties with the state situation. I think the big difference here is situational. I think in 74, if they had decided to indict him, you're right that the verdict of history has been positive, but that could have happened. The problem here, and this is what I wrote about this week, is if you indict him with 60% of Republicans or 40%, whatever, still for him, you don't solve many basic problems. And essentially, I think it's misguided to look to Garland as the avenging angel who will alone bring accountability. It's one thing if he doesn't, and I've come slowly to the view that I infer Emily now has, which is the only thing worse than indicting him would be not indicting him. But the situation is so tied up in politics in a way it wouldn't have been with Nixon. I do want to say, Bill, that your point is really important and people don't appreciate it enough, the all the president's men point. So it's one thing, and there's a whole welder of legal policy, political considerations, et cetera, when you decide whether to pull the trigger on a Trump prosecution. But Meadows and other figures who are up there, if they get a complete pass, That'll be, you know, a bad day, I think, for accountability. Though This is an episode in and of itself. Ugh, this just drives me so crazy, though. And I feel like you see it all over the January 6th prosecutions, which I'm not against. It's just the idea that everybody is accountable, but the guy who actually did the thing, the <laughs> only person here yeah. who really mattered. I am not against, I want to say real clearly, like if you rushed yeah. the Capitol and broke, broke the window stuff. and <laughs> you deserve to pay for that. At the same time... Like to try to have a little bit of cognitive empathy here, 
it is not a crazy thing to believe the president of the United States. If you're already just like a Republican who thinks Donald Trump is great, which is what a lot of these people were, and he tells you that the election is being stolen. I think if I really believed an election was being stolen, like I would be pro like people being out in the streets. I might not say like rush the yeah, Capitol. Exactly. But it's a very thin line at that Tiananmen point. Square. I mean, the line is actually about the substantive issue itself, whether you're a patriot who's keeping a terrible theft from happening or you're an insurrectionist trying to make a terrible theft happen. And I always think this when I see these people getting sent to jail, that the person who deserves to go to jail is the guy who convinced them to rush the Capitol which is Donald Trump. So look, I'm all for it. Meadows, whatever. The people committed crimes should pay for the crimes. But there is something I think so sick about a political culture where we've decided that because you had the most power, you are the most unaccountable. And it's not that I don't understand all the constraining factors here. I just want to note like what a bizarre place it leaves us in. Well, just to dot that I, the guilt of Republican elites, who are not Trump operatives, is very high here. Because let's assume Trump says on November 4th, Fourth, the thing was stolen, terrible. You know, what if every Republican governor and senator of stature, or 80% of them, or 60% of them, 40% of them, say, no, that is not true. I'm your Republican conservative congressman, senator, governor. I'm the vice president of the United States. I'm the attorney general of the United States. And I'm telling you publicly, not in one tiny interview with AP on December 2nd, I'm telling you when I resign that this is false. I have served Trump loyally. I went beyond the you wouldn't say this, but I went beyond the line of discrediting the Mueller report and all this, and I am telling you that this is false. But this is Ezra's point. If you're a normal, I mean, a normal, quote, normal, but a Trump supporter out there, you hear Trump on the one side, you hear silence from everyone else, ranging from the vice president and the attorney general down to the Senate majority leader, the House Republican leader, your own governor, et cetera. And you think, okay, well, Trump is saying this, and two actual elected Republicans in the whole country are actually challenging this. And the idea, this is sort of Ezra's original point, the idea that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are the only Republicans in the entire Congress of the United States, well, maybe Romney, I guess, who were like saying this is utterly and totally unacceptable. It's not a close call. He can't run again. It's a total disgrace. We need to see the truth. I mean, this gets to your point, Harry, about Nixon. And Ford. By the time Nixon left, half of the Republicans in Congress were saying this. Yes. Th that's what it should be now. It should be 80%, but it would be normal, I would say, given party loyalty, maybe given Polarization would even increase the norm here a little for 60% of the elected Republicans to be enabling Trump still. But 209 out of 211 House Republicans, that is why it's such a terrible situation. It's the Republican Party and the conservative elites that have turned a very dangerous and difficult situation of a populist demagogue being president into a truly threat to liberal democracy, I would say. And just let me not exclude the demagogue for a moment, because again, with Nixon, Nixon's never looked so good as these last few years, but he had some kind of dedication to the Republic or the Constitution or whatever, or just decency to walk away. And something that, I, you know, in a normal setting would count for prosecution is Trump redoubles and redoubles again his jackassery. Is that a word? Jackassery? And just last week called January 6th, basically a great love-in. So in other words, he's not only unrepentant, but he fans the same flames with the same toxic effect on our political culture. Like you, Bill, I thought at least after January 6th, okay, finally, we're done with this guy and the exact opposite. But that's something that Merrick Garland needs to take into account. Is there any other way to make him 
stand down and repair the damage to the, you know, body politic. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose to help your wine get the most from your dish and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always, Hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb. And there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's shift gears and take a few minutes to talk about gun legislation and the possibly effective or in a very, very, very modest way, bipartisan efforts in legislation. So we've got a pretty small beer here. And the most important thing that seemed like it was going to happen among the well-accepted proposals out there, that is the increase from 18 to 21 of who can get an assault rifle, even that was batted down. So are we left with maybe a symbolic accomplishment that in some ways they're getting together, or is it really such modest tinkering at the edges that it's negligible? The most optimistic thing to me about the package is not anything in the package, which I think on a policy level is incrementally better, but on a very, very narrow margin. Yeah. It would be for a coalition to emerge that has some experience at least one time passing gun legislation in the aftermath of a mass shooting and like remembers that is a possible thing to do and works that unbelievably atrophied muscle even for the first time, even just like the finger twitch of the comatose patient (laughs) right here. I think there is some, like in the long sweep of things, because it is unfortunately not the last time we're going to have a gun tragedy in this country, I think that kind of thing could matter a little bit, right? Such a then, you know, again, God forbid, but predictably given our policy, the next time some of these same people are like, we did something and it clearly wasn't enough. So it's not so much about this one to me as about the refashioning of some idea that it is possible to pass national gun control legislation. And some of the people remember how it is that you do it 
And that could, I mean, again, could matter over time. But all the qualifiers and catches in my statement there, you can kind of see how pathetic the boundaries in which we're operating really are. I hate to do anything to puncture the least bit of optimism on this topic, but I I just know <laughs> that was that the it's... least bit of optimism. Too. I know, <laughs> I know that's that is not... the right way to describe that. <laughs> it's like a sagging balloon, anyway. Hardly any air comes out, really. Yeah, you know that scene in um, Mary Poppins where they're all on the ceiling and like someone says something depressing. We weren't even anywhere near the ceiling, and I'm about <laughs> to say something depressing, which is that. It does seem noteworthy, though, that four of the 10 Republicans who are potentially on board for this deal don't have to run for re-election. It does. So we're also seeing a lot of action on the state level, but we have twice as many guns per capita as the second country in the world and 10 times as much as most other like Western democracies. Given that fact, are the state measures with the ease with which guns can cross state lines much to look for? Can that buoy us halfway up toward the ceiling again? I mean, the most striking state measures of the last 10, 20 years have been the unbelievable liberalization, I hate to use that word, but it's the right word, loosening, let's just say, of gun laws. And I I was talking with someone from Tennessee, I was on a show uh, in Tennessee, and I was talking with the host, I said, what what are your laws, by the way? This is Tennessee, which I figured, I don't know, I'm like so old, I think of Tennessee as Lamar Alexander and Howard Baker and Nashville and Chattanooga, I don't know, it's not Mississippi. And their laws are just total, you know, no training, no permit, 18 years old, concealed carry, open carry, couple of places you're not allowed to take it to the Capitol and maybe to, and to schools, but on campus, fine. I mean, I don't know. So doesn't that kind of just as a practical matter overwhelm whatever New York State does to tighten up somewhat reasonably, it seems like, their own laws? I mean, just, and then the cult of the of the AR-15 and stuff is, I mean, the degree of right. sickness we are now in, in my opinion, as a non-gun owner, so I'm like not representative and all that, but in gun world, combined with these laws, I remember following the gun debate when I got to Washington, I never had anything to do with it, but there were sort of semi-serious public policy questions of does the gun control stuff really work? And there were serious policy studies on sort of on both sides somewhat. We're now so beyond that. Now it's like, you'll have to pry it out of my cold hands. What was once that was like a joke, right, is now literally the kind of policy of, I don't know how much of the country, but of almost the entire Republican Party. But yeah. I agree with those. I mean, it's anything that therefore breaks that momentum a little bit might be useful, but it's a pretty small break. And is the court going to throw out, incidentally, the 100-year-old New York law? Yeah, that's where I wanted to go to, if only for a minute. So that's, you mentioned New York State. So New York State has what would have struck a lot of people like, say me, as reasonable. You can get it. You can conceal it. But you may have to show some just cause that you can do it. And the court, I think, seems poised to say that is an undue burden, you might say, on the right of the Second Amendment to even have to show something. So what do you think about the courts soon to come? Gloss on this. Well, I want to push back on the idea that the state and local gun safety laws don't matter because Uh they do matter. There's really good social science comparing, for example, my state of Connecticut, which really did tighten up restrictions after our horrible Sandy Hook tragedy, compared to states like, I think this particular study is about Missouri, which loosened restrictions, like you were saying, Bill, and you see real differences, especially in suicide rates, which are a real big percentage of gun deaths, and we do not talk about them enough. So there is something at stake in these state and local laws, and it does seem like the Supreme Court is really poised to 
make it much harder for states and localities to have these kinds of gun safety rules. And that is going to be a big deal. What is really going to matter is the extent of the court's ruling, because I actually think it's really hard to get the kind of permit that's at issue in this New York case. My personal view about whether that's just fine or not, forget it. The court could strike down that law and still leave some significant room for regulation. But the question of whether they're really going to do that or not, and even if in this particular case they only make a relatively modest move, I think they're going to open the door to really making it very hard, if not impossible, for states and localities to pass these laws, which is a hundred percent different from the law we had until the Supreme Court decided we have this individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, which is a 2008, if I recall right, decision. And it's also a huge step from that decision, Heller, which left a lot of room for state and local laws. So this could really be a sea change. All right. Fair enough. We are out of time. So we have just 30 seconds or so for our final Talking Five, where we serve up a question from a listener and we all have to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question, what will John Eastman say to Judge Michael Ludig, for whom he clerked, next time the two run into each other? Hey, thanks. Thanks, man. (laughs) That's three. Yeah. Nothing. He will say nothing. Zero (laughs) words. (laughs) Put me on the pardon list, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Pardons, anyone. And I'm going with, I lied, so sue me. We are, sad to say, out of time for what's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much to Bill, Ezra, and Emily. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we'll be posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we have posted a conversation with Rachel Neuer about MDMA-assisted therapy to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. You can go check it out and see what else we have there and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. 
Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.